As we're turning to James 2 this morning, I'm just going to ask you parents, parents, which child in your family is your favorite? Right, don't answer that question, right? That's a trick question. We're not supposed to have favorites, right? Uh, we understand that having favorites can be dangerous. Uh, if we were to look at the Old Testament, we'd see the example of Jacob and Joseph to make very clear to us the danger of having favorites, right? Remember how uh, Jacob loved uh, Joseph and, uh, and Benjamin too because they were both from his favorite wife, uh, which was Rachel, uh, who died early. And uh, we see all the tension that that caused, right? Uh, th those brothers had a loving uh, relationship with each other, right? Well, no, there was a lot of tension, wasn't there? There was uh, a lot of the brothers that uh, wanted, wanted to kill Joseph, in fact. They hated him so much because he was the father's favorite. Uh, and instead of killing him, they settled on simply selling him into slavery, right? That sounds so much better, but that's what uh, the father's favoritism did there, right? So we understand, as parents, having a favorite is a dangerous thing. We also understand in the business world, in the office setting, that can also be a dangerous thing to have favorites, right? Uh, if a boss has a particular favorite employee that's always the one they go to and always the one given the special raises or jobs. Um, uh, my father for a long time worked in uh, uh, auto body repair and I remember him talking about how in that business the managers decide who gets to work on different jobs and it's based on commission. So the concept of favoritism in that situation can be very frustrating and affect your income, right? We understand in families, we understand in the business world that favoritism can be dangerous. In extreme cases in favoritism, it could even, in the business world, could lead to uh, lower staff morale, higher turnover employees, or even lawsuits. We know favoritism is bad, and today's passage in James is going to tell us that favoritism in the church is especially bad. So we're going to look at James chapter 2, and uh, though I originally intend to get all the way to verse 13, I think we'll probably only get down to about verse 7 today, uh, but we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 4 to get us started in James chapter 2 before we pray this morning. Let's read those verses. It says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, You sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Uh, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Right, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a passage that probably all of us understand. We shouldn't be like this. And yet, Father, I suspect, as I see it in my own heart, 
I suspect we're often blind to our quick judgments and our, our own tendencies to show favoritism. Help us, Father, to see that. I pray that you'd expose some of those things so that we could correct it, that we could lovingly accept people regardless of social status, regardless of, of race or color or ethnicity or any of those things, Father. Help us to love people impartially, to love people genuinely as you do. Help us to be encouraged and yet challenged from your word as we look at it this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, just as a little a backup here, uh, remember last week we talked about uh, how James was commanding believers, commanding us to eagerly listen to God's word, right? And as he uh, worked, we worked through that, we saw how James said we not only need to listen, we need to also obey. And, and then he, at the end of the chapter, in chapter 1 there, gives some examples of what he means to obey. And as he concluded with those examples, I think there's a tie-in to our passage this morning, which is why I'm bringing it up. He talked about the need to separate ourselves from the world, remain unstained from the, uh, from the world, but he also talked about the need to take care of widows and orphans. The idea there is that we need to love those who have genuine needs and, and work to meet the genuine needs that people have, to love our neighbors, as Jesus talks about. And he gives an example in the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. James <clears throat> ended chapter 1 on that note, and I would suggest to you he continues that thought in chapter 2 today when he talks about partiality or favoritism. It is a violation of loving your neighbor as yourself, as James is going to lay out here. Um, so, James is continuing this thought, and we see here he lays out the principle right away in verse 1 of chapter 2 of what he's going to talk about for the rest of these 12 uh, verses, or 13 verses. He says here in verse 1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. So he starts here with, the principle, and he gives us the command right away in verse 1. But notice this command is a negative command here. He says, do not have the faith of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, do not hold your faith uh, in this way. So it's a negative command. <clears throat> now we also talked about how James, when he is laying out these tests, and we've talked about two tests so far. We've talked about the test of trials. and uh, It's a test of genuine faith to go through trials and how we respond to trials. He also talked about how we respond to the scripture. All right? Now, in each of those cases, what James did, he explains what they need to do, and then he commands them to do it. All right? But in this case, he's approaching the situation differently he's not only laying out what they need to do he's he's laying it out in such a way as to make the accusation that they're not doing this one correctly so as we look at this test today we can understand James is pointing out here that they are not measuring up and therefore what James is actually calling them to do 
is repent and change. They have been guilty of showing this kind of favoritism, and the idea here is that they need to stop it. So, as we look at it, we keep that in mind, that it is a command that he is going to urge them to change or to, to stop doing this, to stop showing favoritism in the local church. Now, he, he starts the section, as we pointed out before, with that phrase, my brethren, indicating here it's a transition. As we've said, we've talked about trials, we've talked about scripture. Now he's talking about the issue of personal favoritism. And he's giving here a command that they need to not show personal favoritism. Now notice he connects it with the command here about faith, which is his main theme through the book. That we would have genuine faith, and our faith in these various situations would be tested and revealed for what it is. So he's talking here about our faith again, and he says, Do not have our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ mixed with this attitude of personal favoritism. So he is talking about faith, interestingly, in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is only the second time that James mentions Jesus Christ specifically. And it's the last time he mentions Jesus Christ specifically. This is why in some cases people talk about this having a very Jewish feel to the book, a Jewish audience, because there's a lot of references to God without specifically naming God. But James mentions very specifically our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and draws attention here to his characteristic of being glorious. The idea is that he is majestic. And I think it's purposeful in that he's going to focus on the matters of the heavenly and spiritual realm in contrast to how the people in the church have been focused on worldly matters of money and given favor to those that have money, that have riches. All right, but this is not an issue of whether they have faith or not. It's a matter of how they are exercising their faith. So how are they living out their faith, and specifically in the local church? All right, so he's talking here about their faith and how they are treating other people. Now he says that they are not to have an attitude of personal favoritism. So I think we understand the basic idea. The basic idea of favoritism is that we favor one person over another. Right? For some reason, we prefer one over a different one. But the idea of this word, personal favoritism, actually only occurs in the New Testament four times. And the literal translation of this word is to receive the face of. To receive the face of. So you can understand how... With that literal understanding of the word, the idea is about us showing personal favoritism based on how people appear. So the warning here is not to judge people based on how they appear and give them special favoritism in the local church. There are three other uses of this, which maybe we'll look at later, but... Um, Basically, each of them talk about God being impartial, that he does not look on the externals for judgment. He is impartial. He judges righteously, without favoritism, based on true merits or uh, 
false, right? So James is here warning that we need to not have the attitude of personal favoritism. Now, James is then going to go on and illustrate this. I, I wanted to mention to you the PowerPoint this morning is incredibly simple, all right? So it's not going to be a lot of detail, not a lot of pictures. Um, and I think in part it's because the text teaches a concept that is simple. But I would also suggest, though it is simple, there's depth to it and there's uh, a real need to reflect on our own heart attitudes in how we respond to other people in the local assembly. So James goes on here to explain uh, what he's talking about. So he says, don't have personal favoritism, and then he's going to illustrate what he means in verses 2 and 3. So let's look what he says there. He talks about if it's sort of a hypothetical situation, right? So he says here in verse 2, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there comes in also a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges of evil motives? All right? So, in verses 2 through 3, he gives an example of two men, right? So the first one has a gold ring and fine clothes. What's the simple, obvious understanding of what kind of person that is? A rich person, right? Somebody who's got wealth. Somebody who has means. Somebody who is wealthy. Well-to-do with the material goods in this life. The second man, in contrast, he, he specifically calls a poor man, and he says about this person that they have shabby clothes, or in this case it's translated dirty clothes. Interestingly, it's related to the word used in verse 21 of chapter 1, where it says, put aside all filthiness, where he says that in 21. Same root word there. So he's talking about somebody who has not just uh, not the latest trend in clothing, but somebody who has dirty, filthy, smelly clothing. There's a clear distinction between these two people. So the one person has fine clothes, gold ring, clearly has money. The other person clearly does not. So he's using two extremes to draw the attention here. Now he says this person comes into the assembly here. He says comes into your assembly. The literal word for assembly there is synagogue. Synagogue. And, and again, another support for the fact of saying James has a Jewish audience, uh, Jewish, early church, Jewish believers in mind when he, who he's writing to. So it's the synagogue. That was the place where the early church would assemble. Many Jewish believers got saved and they already had a synagogue and they would use that for their church assembly. Um, and, and church, as we understand, means to assemble or to call out, right? So it's a, a called out assembly. So their assembly, the setting here that James is talking about, is the church. So what's his, his point? He's talking then about a situation where they're gathered as a church and a rich unbeliever probably 
comes into the congregation and a poor unbeliever comes into the congregation and he talks about their response to that person. How are they treating that person and um, what, what's wrong with how they're treating that person? He says here their response is different. So what do they do? They favor the rich person. Look at verse 3. You pay special attention to the one wearing fine clothes. And he says, you sit here in a, in a good place, right? And he says to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. So the behavior here is simply based on appearance. They have decided to honor the person who is rich in giving them a good seat and dishonor the person who is poor giving them a terrible seat or no seat at all. Frankly, the, the, uh, the idea if they're seated by the footstool, where are they actually seated? The floor. And in our, in our day with modern buildings and carpeted floors, I don't think we really appreciate the significance of this insult. I think in part what, what helped me to maybe appreciate this a little bit more was the trip that uh, we took this summer. My wife and I went to China and there was a peculiar thing we noticed, at least peculiar to us, about the, the teenagers and the kids over there in China that we were working with. We were running an English camp, and, and we would teach them things. We'd sing songs. We'd do all kinds of fun stuff. And occasionally, we'd do games and activities and skits. And sometimes, we would want the children to be seated, to sit down. I think, I think Joanne, in particular, tried to play duck duck goose with the kids so she went out to a basketball court that was nearby there's not much grass pretty much everything's concrete out there but she went out to a basketball court and she was wanting the children to be seated to play duck duck goose and they would not do it and, and at different times and working with the teenagers as well we were trying to get them to be seated on the floor for activity they were doing they would not do it. Now what we came to understand, and I'm sorry this is maybe a little bit graphic, but in that culture, in some places, some people are not careful about where they go to the bathroom. In some cases, in some places, people will just go to the bathroom in the public on the ground. And that in part, I think, has influenced their culture so that the ground is a very, very dirty thing and may have waste, you know, uh, maybe somebody stepped in something, traveled it around, it's on the floor. So they consider the floor to be a very, very dirty thing. And it, and it took being in that culture to really understand and appreciate that. And, and if we apply that same kind of logic here, what's happening in the church setting, I believe it's a similar kind of insult. Um, that was, they were in a day in which there weren't uh, the facilities and things that we have. It probably was an extremely dirty floor. And so to put somebody on the floor was a major insult. And James is warning here about their attitude of showing favoritism. And then let's look now at how he gives the conclusion about this principle in verse 4 after this illustration of what he said here, what, what they're doing. He's then going to bring it 
to a close here with his, his application, his conclusion on how they've behaved to respond this way. He says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Now notice he states it in the form of a question. What's also interesting is he's using the second person, right? So what sounds like a hypothetical situation, he's targeting at them. Have you not? So I think the implication is here, they have displayed some of this attitude. They have done these kinds of things, and James is calling them into question. And he uses a, uses a question in putting it back to them. Why do you think he uses a question? Can you think of another example in the Old Testament where somebody clearly did wrong and God used a question? Adam and Eve, right? Did God know where Adam was? Yes. But he used a question. He said, Adam, where are you? What is he doing? By asking a question, he's engaging Adam's conscience to recognize he's done wrong and to acknowledge that. And I believe there's a similar intention with the questions here in James 2.4. He is engaging them with these questions that are intended to be an obvious yes. So he says here, um, have you not, have you not, uh, Lost my place. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves? The obvious answer is yes, we have. That, and that's James' point. He says you've made distinctions. You've made distinctions. And I think it's important for us to think about this because this is a key point that James is making. In the church, we are not supposed to have distinctions based on money, based on race, based on social class, in Christ we are one. Whatever money I have or don't have doesn't improve my relationship with God or my standing in the assembly of believers. It is not to be that way. There is an urgent need for unity in the local church, and by doing this, it's creating a distinction. Look, we're going to look at some verses. Let's go over to uh, keep your place in James because we'll be back. But let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where uh, Paul stresses the need for unity in the local church, which frankly is found all throughout the scriptures. Uh, we could look as well at Ephesians 4, 1 through 7 where there's great emphasis placed on one Lord, one faith, one baptism, having unity in the church. He says here in 1 Corinthians 1.10, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind, in the same judgment. So he says there's to be unity. There's supposed to be unity in, the, uh, in, in Christ. There is not to be distinctions. Let's look at Galatians chapter 3 as well. Galatians chapter 3 is a great verse that talks about this lack of distinctions in Christ. Galatians 3, 28 says, 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. If we are in Christ, we are part of the family of God. And we are not distinguished from each other based on our jobs or our money, our social class, our pedigree. We are in Christ, and the basis of us being in Christ is the work of Christ and our response of faith to that work. We stand in Christ by grace through faith, not by what we have. And this behavior by the church is breaking down and this distinction that's clearly there uh, this distinction that's not supposed to be there in the church. Look with me at Colossians chapter 3 as well. A very similar concept to Galatians 3. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11. Speaking of those who are in Christ, in which there is, it says, the renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So there's a distinction being made by operating this way that is not supposed to be there. And if you think about it in the context of an unsaved person coming into the church, and you treat an unsaved rich person better than you do the poor person coming in, what are you communicating about the gospel in the church? You're communicating that riches mean something to God and your relationship with God. So it is a perversion of the gospel too. A very, very serious offense. Do you remember in the Old Testament, there was the prophet Elijah, or was it Elijah? I think it was Elisha. Prophet Elisha was visited by Naaman. You remember Naaman the Syrian who came to see Elisha because he had leprosy and he wanted to be cured of his leprosy. And Elisha said, go and wash yourself in the, in the river and uh, come back in, uh, or seven times, wash yourself in the river and you'll be clean. Well, he initially resisted that, thinking my own water, my own rivers and my own country are better than uh, what we have here in Israel, why should I do that? But he was encouraged by his servants and said, this is a small thing, you should, you should do this. So he does, and he's healed, and he comes back to Elisha, and he wants to give a financial gift to Elisha. And you remember what Elisha says? Elisha won't take the gift. But what happens is he leaves, and the servant of Elisha, Gehazi, followed after Naaman and lied and said, oh yeah, we could use some things and basically ask for some money and some clothing, and Naaman gives it. He returns, and Elisha pronounces a curse on Gehazi. He's now going to have the leprosy that was on Naaman. And, and there's not much explanation given for why that happened, but this is what I would suggest to you is happening. It is a perversion of the message. God is saying, by faith, you are forgiven of your sins and cleansed. Your money doesn't get you anything. So Elijah's rejecting that because it would pervert the message. But Gehazi perverted the message. And we also need to be careful not to pervert the message 
of the gospel. It is freely available to all, regardless of our status or race. All can come to Christ, but they need to do it in faith. It is not based on our status in society. The world's standards should not govern how we treat people. And by treating people this way, we're actually clouding the message of the gospel. Now he says here also that they are become judges of evil motives. And here he's getting at their thinking. He's getting at their thinking because they are operating based on what they'll gain. Right? Why, why be kind to a rich person? Is it because they intend to communicate to this person that the way to be good with God is to have money? No, that's not their point. That's not their motivation. Their motivation is to get something. But that's evil. They are not to be seeking to get things from rich people. Again, God is the provider, and we need to trust God and we shouldn't be giving special favors to those who have things versus those who don't. And this all stems from wrong thinking. We need to guard our thinking. We need to be careful in how we look at people, how we judge people, and therefore how we act towards people. But I would encourage you, as uh, James has pointed out here, to recognize there is a tie to how we think and how we behave. And he's pointing out the behavior is driven by evil motives. And I know, we, we know, we, we look at this and we say, oh, of course we shouldn't treat rich people this way. We shouldn't treat poor people that way. We get that, right? Well, I think sometimes we don't recognize what's really going on in our minds sometimes. Um, as as a, a tool that helped me in exposing this tendency to wrong thinking in my life, we had to read a book. Um, and going to China, we had to read this book called uh, Cross-Cultural Servanthood, Serving the World in Christ-like Humility. Any of you read that for mission trips you took here? Very, very challenging book. There's some things we wouldn't agree with or see the exact same way. But part of what the author was doing was trying to expose how when we go and we visit people in different cultures, we make snap judgments and assume our way is better and their way is wrong right? So he, he talks about how he read about some research. So I'm, it's a little bit long, but I'm going to read you some of the things he said. Uh, the author said, a while ago, he read a study about how quickly American people, like me, make decisions about other people. The study measured how quickly people make judgments when they first meet. Imagine you and I were standing in a line somewhere, and you, in a friendly way, turn around and introduce yourself to me. How long do you think it would take me to determine if there was a possibility of friendship between us. 30 seconds? A minute? Five minutes? How long? Well, the surprising results were that it took the average person between 2.4 and 4.6 seconds to decide if there was a potential for a relationship. What is that? That's a snap Judgment, a quick rush to judgment, right? But he goes on and he says, it, it's, even, it's even worse than that. Because imagine you and I are waiting in a line and you want to be friendly and you turn around and strike up a conversation. Uh, in less than five seconds, I've already placed you into a category as well. He says, 
Let's say your hair and overall appearance look disheveled. You look like you just got out of bed and picked up your clothes from the bottom of the pile. Now something else tends to happen. Not only have I decided there is no future in this relationship, I've made a second judgment about you. I've assigned you to negative attributes. I've decided you are undisciplined, disorganized, and so forth. Now, we could look at this and say the author is just has a, has a problem. But I think the studies have shown, and if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize this tendency is ours too. We tend to rush to snap judgments of people and treat them accordingly. One of the other things he brought out here was you rush to that snap decision, and it also becomes very hard to ever overcome that snap decision. Now, because we're sinners, we're inclined to have those kinds of responses. And occasionally we might make a snap judgment that's correct, all right? But we need to recognize our tendencies and change our thinking. How do we value people? What's really important? Is their appearance what should govern how we treat them? We should not judge people that way. God does not judge people that way. Now, he being God has all knowledge, so he can see the heart that we can't see. And it is true that appearances can tell us some things about people. But we need to recognize, we need to be careful not to show favoritism based on how people look. We should not be showing favoritism in the church. We, as a church are one body in Christ, and we're intended to be without distinction. Now, he says, uh, as we look at Galatians 3, and we, and we saw in Colossians 3 as well, he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, right? Now, it doesn't mean when we come to Christ, we don't still have those nationalities or, or that skin color or those jobs or that place in society. His point is that isn't what gives us value there. It isn't what determines our favor with God. It is our faith. And we need to treat people based on their faith. Now, James talks here in verses 5, 6, and 7, and the rest of the chapter, which we won't get to today, giving them proof about why this behavior is bad. And he says, first of all, in 5, uh, five and, and going into 6 a little bit, it's because they are dishonoring those whom God honors. Look at verse 5 with me. He says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to them that love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. And look with me, uh, continuing on verse 6, we also see that they've honored those who dishonor God. It says, Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? So, he says, by responding this way, by giving favor to the rich, by dishonoring the poor, you are dishonoring a general group of people that God generally favors or honors, and you've honored a general group of people that God generally dishonors. So they have favored the rich and dishonored the poor, where the, the scriptures indicate God's tendency is to do the other way. Now, 
this brings up a tension point. And I realize this is uh, a, a little bit tedious, and we've got to work through this detail, but it's important, I think, to understand. Is James saying you shouldn't show favoritism to the rich, you should give all the favoritism to the poor? That's not his point. His point is we shouldn't let social status drive how we treat people. And, uh, and, and bringing out his points here about God, there is a tendency we see in the scriptures for how God treats people. So I would encourage you to think with me through a, a few things about how God treats people as we see in the Old Testament. Number one, God is concerned about the poor, downtrodden, and outcast. We see this theme throughout the scriptures. Psalm 68.5 talks about God being a father to the fatherless a defender of widows. And we see James says in 127, we've got to take care of the widows and orphans, right? There is a theme in the scripture about God taking care of the weak. There is, uh, in Deuteronomy 10:18. if you look with me there, I think because this one illustrates both points I want to make with this. Deuteronomy 10:18, and then we'll look at 19, so keep your finger there. Deuteronomy 10:18 talks about God's attitude towards fatherless, widows, and aliens. Aliens, uh, actually, it's, I think it's the King James word, but it's sojourners or foreigners is the idea. People who are not native to Israel. It says in ten, Deuteronomy 10.18, He, that is God, executes justice for the orphan, for the widow, and shows his love for the alien. Okay, is Nazby too. It means foreigner, someone who is not native to the country, the alien, by giving him food and clothing. So we see this emphasis in the scripture about God taking care of these weak, these poor, all right? But he also then says, there, there's indication from the scriptures that we're to do the same thing, like we saw with James in 127. We also see in verse 19 of Deuteronomy. He says, so show your love to the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. So we're to act like God in showing this kind of love and kindness to the weak, the sickly, the, the poor, the widows, right? And uh, if we look at uh, some passages in the Psalms especially, there is often an association with the poor being righteous, Psalm 72 uh, verses 2 through 4, or all of Psalm 10 pretty much talks about this concept. The, the poor are often associated with the righteous, whereas the wicked are often associated with the rich. And you, you could even look in the New Testament and you see some examples like Luke chapter 6, where it talks about blessed are the poor. So this brings up an important question and tension are we supposed to recognize that rich people are evil and poor people are good? Is that his point? It seems like there's this tension in the scripture towards that, but we need to remember a couple things. So I, I give you a few points here to think about. Number one, many of the references to the poor in the New Testament, uh, like Luke 6.20 talks about blessed are the poor. Well, Matthew 5.3 says... Blessed are the poor in spirit. So there is a recognition as human beings because of our sin 
we are poor or we are bankrupt. We have no means by giving anything to God to take care of our sin or to earn his favor. So a large part of the emphasis on the poor is the recognition of our poverty before God. Also, uh, we do see this emphasis, Mark 10 talks about how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. And yet, in James 1, we talked a few weeks ago about how he talks about the brother who does have things and loses things, perhaps, in a trial. So it is possible for a rich person to be a believer. Part of the tension also comes, we haven't gotten there yet, but in James chapter 5, James has one of the most fierce rebukes on the rich you'll find in the scriptures in James chapter 5. But as you look at what he says there in James 5, the emphasis is not on the fact that they have money. The, fact, the emphasis is on what they've done, how they've behaved. So the rebuke is for their behavior, not for their status as simply being rich. So, we need to recognize that being rich in and of itself isn't evil, and being poor isn't in and of itself automatically good. There is a need to recognize and respond to Christ by faith, and some rich people do that, and some poor people do that. Now, the generalization in Scripture does seem to be that more tend to be poor than rich. But being poor doesn't make it automatically good, or being rich doesn't make it automatically bad. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to finish up this morning looking at this verse, these verses in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 and 29. I think it illustrates the point here that James is making that we should take note of. In 26, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting there, it says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. So we have clear indication from scriptures that the general tendency is that God does use and work in the lives of those that are poor, those that are needy, those that are weak, those that are not noble or mighty, it says here. That is the general tendency. But also notice it says not many. It doesn't say not any, right? So James provides a sharp rebuke and a challenge for us to evaluate our own thinking. We might look at a rich person coming into the church. We're, we're a small church, right? If there was a rich person that became a member here, we would all be thinking, boom, the offerings are going to go up, right? The pastor could be thinking, I'm going to get a bigger salary. We can do all these things with the building, right? There are intentions that may be good there, but again, it's not really a good way to look at people when they come in, right? Because it's not really motivated by what God says should be our motivation. God saves and uses many people who are poor and destitute and sickly. 
God does save some that are rich and noble, but that tends to be a smaller group, right? But the idea is not that we should favor the poor at the expense of the rich. The point is we should love people. We should not make distinctions in the congregation. Our merit in the church is based upon the work of Christ and our faith in him. And we need to treat people accordingly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have made salvation available to all through your Son and that we can't earn it. Father, our human tendency is to want to earn it, to think we can do something, or because you've worked in our lives, for us to think we're better. Help us, Father, to love people as you love people, to treat people based on their relationship with you. Help us not to judge on appearances, but help us to recognize those of true faith and honor faith, but help us, Father, not to make distinctions. Help us to have unity in the church. Help us to honor and glorify you by how we treat people, how we operate as a church, and how we lovingly welcome all to come and hear the gospel and pray that they will come to know you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.